How many of you like watching um, television commercials? A anybody, you know, anybody find television commercials entertaining? Um, Super Bowl commercials, right? Okay, there you go. Um, they mostly, uh, if, if you watch live TV, um, which a lot of people aren't doing anymore, but if you watch live TV anymore, that's probably the most annoying part of you know, watching television or, or films uh, through that medium because, oh my goodness, it's just, it drives you crazy how many of them there are. But I remember as a little boy, um, I, you know, watching, watching TV commercials and they'd go by and I, I just thought they were just fun. They're, you know, 30 seconds, uh, minute long, um, um, little, you know, I don't know, they're, they're almost like tiny little movies or something. And, and I would laugh and there were these commercials that were just so entertaining or, or so like, wow, astounding. Um, I don't know if you uh, just go back with me many, many years. When I was a little boy, there was this, there was this radical commercial, um, a, uh, a, a 1984 commercial and, uh, where Apple was releasing their Macintosh computer. And this, this short, you know, 30 to 60 second commercial was groundbreaking. And it just, you know, if you were sitting there watching, you'd be like, you were just like, wow, what just happened? Wow, I've never seen a commercial like that. Or, um, or maybe you remember one of my favorite commercials uh, was a couple of two or three little old ladies and they were, they, 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 they were looking at a hamburger and they, they pulled the bun off and this one woman says, where's the beef? And that became a catchphrase for Wendy's. You know, where's the beef? Or, or maybe um, you remember back in the day before I'm loving it, McDonald's had something like, you deserve a break today. You deserve a break today at McDonald's. And it, it went on. In it. Oh, wow. That's... <laughs> I'm sorry. I, 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 I <laughs> so, so you deserve a break today. Or, or where's the beef? Or, or whatever that was. I don't know. Whatever they were selling. Um, you know, the computers. Or now it's, it's, via, it's, it's Lexus um, cars with red bows on them. And... and um, and we're getting these Christmas commercials before we've even purchased our Thanksgiving turkey. Or like maybe like a couple years ago, I think it was a Verizon commercial that was advertising Thanksgiving instead of Thanksgiving. I thought that was, that's kind of threw me. I almost fell out of my chair when I watched that. Um, this is a season of Thanksgiving. Get yourself something. Come on down to the Verizon store and get something for yourself. What are all those doing? Aside from maybe entertaining us, which they do, they're meant to. They're meant to captivate us. They're meant to attract us. What are they doing? They're all stirring up a little thing called discontent. They're all pointed at, you know, what you, you know your life that you live, the sad, poor, pathetic life that you live? It would be a lot better if you had this. You know, all your problems would go away if you had this item. Really, um, it's a reality that um, has, I think, shaken me because sometimes I'll just sit there and I'll buy right into it. And I'll turn to my wife. 
I'll go, oh man, I really need to get that. Or my kids will say, that's what I want, Daddy. It's Christmas is coming. That's what I want. Right? Suddenly, we look at, we, we get bombarded with what's out there and we go, man, I'm, what I have in my life is just, is just not cutting it. It's just not good enough. I need something more or some stuff more or someone else or whatever it might be. Discontent is a huge problem. In fact, it's one of the things that steals our joy. The Apostle Paul wrote um, to the Philippians about this subject of discontent versus content. And in this passage today, I want us to, to explore the joy of contentment. And, and see that that's a, that's a real possibility that's available to us today. And it's something that we'll have to fight against because our culture is so, so steeped in this, this problem of discontent. So we're going to have to work at it and we're going to have to see that, man, we're going to have a hard time being content on our own as Paul discovered uh, in his life, and he encourages us in that as well. So let's look together at Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 is where we're at, and we're going to go from verses 10 to 14. So uh, would you stand with me? These are just a few short verses. Stand with me in honor of, of God's word this morning, and, and let's read it together. Philippians chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, as we settle into this message today and the, this, this Bible passage, um, Father, this is a word that you have for us today. A word um, that we need to hear. Help us to hear it clearly. Um, Father, um, I pray that your spirit will be the one at work this morning. Not the spirit of man, not my own ideas, um, but God, that you will speak clearly to each heart today. For your glory and our joy, in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. I want to draw your attention to three, three things that, um, that this, this passage um, reveals to us. And the first one is this, that contentment is essential to a joyful life. It really is. There's, there's really no way that you can, you can continue in joy and live in joy by being discontent. Have you ever tried it? <laughs> I know. So when my kids want something, um, I don't detect any joy in them when they're just like, Dad, Mom, I want this, I want that. Uh, calm down now, calm down, girls. It's going to be okay. 
You don't need that. But I want it, I want it, I want it. So when they throw the temper tantrum on the floor of Target, um, you know that joy is not the, the, the motivating emotion and factor in their life, right? They're discontent about something. And so if we can learn to be content, as Paul um, suggests here, that is going to lead us to a joyful life. And it's not the only factor but it's a very important factor. It's an essential factor of the joyful life. So look at Paul, how Paul begins these words. And, and recall that he's been teaching, he's been t- um, talking to um, the, the church in Philippi about some pretty essential things in the Christian life, about how they ought to, to live together, how, how they ought to love one another. Uh, how, how they ought to be in Christian unity together. And in verse 4, he says, Rejoice in the Lord always again, I will say rejoice. And he's echoing a, 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 a command or an exhortation all the way back to the beginning of chapter 3 when he told them there to rejoice in the Lord. And so joy is this theme, of course, that's going throughout the, the letter. Um, he wants them to rejoice in the Lord. And he uh, wants them to pray about everything. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about turning anxieties into prayer. He doesn't want them to be anxious about the things that are going on in, his, in their lives and the circumstances that they are facing as a church, but, but to bring those before God and experience the peace of God. He wants their thought processes and, and, and how they practice the gospel life um, to, to be uh, a focus for their minds. And that God will be with them in that. And then right there at verse 10, he comes back with joy. I rejoiced. He says, I rejoiced. When, and, and I think what he's thinking is, is this. He's telling them, he's telling them that when he received a gift from them by the hands of their servant, their messenger, their brother in Christ, Epaphroditus, that when he received that gift from, from his hands and heard, a, heard their testimony and, and had that re, reunion with them and, and, and discovered anew that the Philippians had, were caring about them, were serving them, uh, or were, were, were thinking about Paul, were concerned for him, he rejoiced. It brought him joy in that, in that instance. He rejoiced in the Lord that that. They renewed their or revived their concern or their thoughts for him. And what's he talking about in verse 10? Verse 10, he's talking about, he's talking about the fact that they responded to a need that Paul had. Paul, remember, Paul's in prison. They heard about this. The Philippians were very concerned. In fact, they were anxious about Paul and about what was going on with him. They were concerned for him. They were thinking about them. But Paul's in Rome. Most likely, that's where he's at when he's writing this. And they're in Philippi. They're, they're a long ways away. And they're thinking, now, how are we going to, how are we going to meet this need? How are we going to help him? And it wasn't until Epaphroditus said, hey, I'll go. Paul is our brother. He came, he established this church, and then he left and went out from us, and he's been serving God. And now, I will go. I will be your messenger. I will, I will represent you, represent this church, by going to see our missionary friend. So he goes, and that's when Paul discovers 
that they were indeed concerned for him the whole while. It's, it's almost like Paul saying, there was, a, there was a time here I wasn't quite sure. I was, I was wondering if anybody was concerned for me. Being in prison is a, is a pretty lonely situation. Being, being out here uh, on the front edge of Christian um, mission work um, is, is a lonely prospect. And I, I honestly wondered if anybody was thinking about me or concerned about me. But then I discovered that you were. And I rejoiced in that. Someone's thinking about me. Someone's praying for me. Paul and Paul now is sure of the Philippians' love for him and their, their, their desire to be in partnership, to share in the ministry of the gospel with Paul. And so that's going on. And Paul is able to rejoice. And, and notice also that this, he's not only rejoicing, but he's also he's, he's expressing his gratitude. He's saying thank you. Without, in, not, not in, in those exact words, but that's what he's, that's what he's expressing to them. By, re, by saying, I'm rejoicing in the Lord, he's actually saying to them, I am forever grateful for what you have done for me. And so this, this, this contentment uh, is not, that Paul ex- has experienced is not just a, a source of joy for him, but it's also a source of the gratitude that he has. Have you, ever, um, have you ever accepted a gift and uh, it wasn't exactly what you uh, wanted? <laughs> Maybe on Christmas morning, you wake up, you open, you know, that little, go into, you open the gift under, under the tree and it's, it's not exactly what you had in mind. And, um, do, you have, do, you, do you find it difficult to be grateful in those moments? It, is that an evidence of our discontent? You think about it. You know, the person who is perfectly content can be grateful. But, but any time that discontent starts to settle into our hearts, uh, we tend not to, to show gratitude. Because really what we feel is, well, thanks, nice try, but really, eh, you know, I'd rather have this, or I'd rather have that, or, well, too little, too late. What a terrible place to be. But Paul is able to speak from a, a, a genuine place of contentment and be able to express his gratitude to them for what they have done for, for him. And on the flip side, on the flip side, I don't know how many um, discontented givers you know, but I don't know very many. So that's the other side of it. You know, if, if you're discontent, you're probably not going to be a joyful giver. And Paul said to the Corinthians in, in his second letter, in chapter 9, that God loves a cheerful giver. And he's actually, he actually says that in the course of a conversation that he's having with them about their contentment. Yes, their they're giving, yes. They're, they're the promises that they made. But, but in, the, in the course of, of saying that, hey, there's not, you don't need to worry about your needs. Don't, 
don't, don't fret about what you don't have or what you might give up or what you might lose. God's going to take care of you. God's got this. Just, just be joyful in your giving. So we see a little bit of all of that right in here. That this contentment, it leads to joy. Contentment leads to, to uh, gratitude. Contentment leads to even giving on the part of the Philippians. I, would, I imagine that when Paul is saying these things, like he has said already, he said and back in chapter 3, verse 1, he said, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He reminds them, he tells them, uh, I've told you these things before. Several times in this letter, he, he alludes to what he's already taught them. And I don't think this is new. This is not new information. This teaching on contentment is not new information for the Philippians. But, but Paul is, is, is stepping out. He said, I'm, I'm very grateful for this, but I don't want you to misunderstand my gratitude. I'm not saying I'm thankful. I'm not expressing my joy in the Lord for this because I need the gravy train to keep going. That's not what he's saying. So he pauses and he says in verse 11, he says, not, not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I'm to be content. He's not, he's, I read a little bit about this this week. And I never, it, the thought really never crossed my mind before. But apparently, um, there's a way of reading this that it, it kind of sounds like maybe Paul's not as grateful as he should be. Did you catch that? I didn't. Maybe I'm just kind of giving Paul the benefit of the doubt. Um, but when he pauses and he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, he kind of qualifies his, his rejoicing and his gratitude. And he's not saying, I'm glad you sent that, but honestly, you shouldn't have done it. I'm good to go. I'm content after all. Well, he's trying to let them know that he has learned to be content. That he has, what he says in verse 12, he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says, he's basically saying, my contentment in what I have allows me to be totally grateful and to rejoice in you whether you're sending gifts my way or not. I wonder how that should strike us. He said he's learned in whatever situation to be content. He said in verse 12, I know how to be brought low, how, how to be humbled. He says, I know how to abound. And he says in any and every circumstance, it's interesting that he uses, he just kind of piles up these, these phrases, in any circumstance, in everything, in anything. He just adds on to them. He says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. He knows what it is to have, have enough, to have plenty uh, to meet his needs. He also knows how to, how to be hungry, how to go hungry, how to tighten up the old uh, belt, or maybe put a couple extra uh, notches in it because, you know, this is just the way things are going to be now. You just have to tighten things up and, and move on. He knows what it is, and he, he repeats the, the word abound, to abound in, at the beginning of verse 12, and abundance is the same term. He, he knows what it's like to have all of this stuff. He knows what it's like to have a Thanksgiving meal 
where you're like, gosh, um, we're going to have to set up some more tables. We've got so much abundance. But he also knows how to be in need. He also knows what it's like to sit down like, um, like the pilgrims did on the, in their first winter in America. When one, there were several days that went by when all there was to eat were, was five kernels of corn. For the day. And, and they, they had to go without for a while to see if they could survive that first winter. Uh, they, didn't, they didn't show up and have a Thanksgiving meal with the, with the Native Americans. Uh, what, Wampanoags? Is that, is, that how you, is that the right term? To, that's, that wasn't their first, first experience. That wasn't their first fall or winter in this world, in this land. They knew what it was to go through need. Paul knew that. He knew what it was to have plenty of needs met, to have a roof over his head, to have food on the table. He also knew what it was to be stripped of everything and to be chained as a prisoner, to have nothing, to be adrift at sea, to be beaten within an inch of his life, to be stoned to death and left for dead outside the city. He knew all of those things. He had experienced it. But he says, I learned to be content. I learned to be satisfied with these things. In fact, he says it's, a, it's like a secret. He says, I've learned the secret. The, 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 this phrase, learn the secret, um, the, the original word for that comes into English as mystery. It's like the secret thing that, that was learned. It was, it was like something that had to be revealed to be understood. And he's saying it, it was like a mystery that was revealed to me. He's actually using a term that, that the Philippians would have connected with. It, it, it was a word that probably made them think about these so-called mystery religions. Where, where in the Greco-Roman world there is these secret societies and secret religions and they would say, come, you know, come and, come and join us and we will, we will teach you things that nobody else is teaching you, that nobody else is going to reveal to you. Maybe it's like the, the Masons today or something like that or I don't know. What, maybe it's like Area 51 if you can get your... You can get a certain clearance. You can, you can be privy to all that secret stuff. But Paul is saying, I've learned the secret, which is really no secret at all. <laughs> it's following Christ. It's depending on Him. That's, that's how we get it. That's how contentment comes into our life. That's why, so that's how we can live a joyful life and, and be grateful and and give of ourselves to others. But there's a problem with this call to contentment. It's a problem for us. The problem is that we want what we don't have. So is it just enough to say, well, contentment is good, grab onto it, be content? Or is it enough to to, um, to say, like the old song says, to count your blessings. 
if we do that, we'll, we'll be, will we be good to go? But what is it? Uh, what is it? What, what will happen if we're in Paul's situation where he knows where he's learned and he knows what it means to be brought low, to be utterly humbled, to be totally hungry, to be in desperate need? What blessings are you counting at that time? Count your blessings sounds pretty good for most of us who live a fairly middle class life. But for those who have Zip. Nada. Nothing. How do they rejoice? How do they practice contentment? Because that's the, that's the spectrum here between having enough and having nothing. Paul says, I know what it is to have nothing and to still be content. I've still learned the secret. See, the thing is that we don't we don't, uh, don't experience that. We don't have that. That's not, what we, that's not our day-to-day -day experience, typically. So what's the problem? Why is it that we can't do contentment? Well, here's a second idea I want us to look at. It's covetousness. That's a long word. I don't think I made it up. Oh, hey, go, you're too far. Go back, go back. I didn't get to that one. Covetousness and comparison. Covetousness and comparison steal our joy. Have you ever said, in the, in the context of our, of, church, of our church life, well, when we, when we do this, or when we get this, or, or when we have that, or, oh, if only we, you know, if only we had a speaker stand that wasn't broken, and people could hear better, and then the music would be better. And then we'd all be worshiping. And then God's spirit could, could move. And, and then God would really be with us. Or if only we had a different system for how we did certain things in the church. Now, or if only we could just go beyond, you know, 30 in attendance and, and, and hit that 50, you know, person mark. Or if only we had... Um, three missional communities meeting rather than two or if only we baptized you know six people this year then we would get recognized at the Northwest Baptist Convention wouldn't that be pretty cool to have our name printed in the program when all of the Baptist churches get together in the Northwest oh if only we have you ever thought anything like that Hopefully not, but it's the thing that, that I confess, I've thought things like that. Comparison. I heard this this week. You'll have to take my word for it, or you can, if, you know, if you're a historian, look it up for me and, and check me on this. But I uh, heard it was, it was, it was, uh, um, credited to Teddy Roosevelt who said, comparison is the thief of joy. Wow. Totally. Have you ever looked over the fence at your neighbors? and Oh, man, look at that. Oh, new car or a swimming pool back there or look at that cool toy or, you know, or, man, I should get a shovel like that. You know, or something. It doesn't matter how big or small it is. 
You ever looked over the fence and go, wow, man, what they have, that's, that's pretty awesome. You, can, you start comparing yourself. Or, or um, better yet, have you ever scrolled down Facebook and you're just, looking at the, you know, you're just looking at the pictures or the Instagram photos and you're like, oh, man, those people are so much more awesome than me. Comparing yourself to others. Or flipping through magazines. I don't know if people read magazines or newspapers anymore, but, you know, of course, then there's the TV advertisements. They're inviting us to compare. Inviting us to compare our lives to what we see. Storing up covetousness. The Tenth Commandment. Ever thought about the Tenth Commandment? The Tenth Commandment is, do not covet your neighbor's possessions, your neighbor's wife, manservant, maidservant, donkey. Or you just go back to the King James Version. It's kind of fun to read it in that version too. And, and it's, I've, I've thought it very interesting. Um, starting with commandment number five, God commands his people about how they ought to treat one another, how they ought to interact in their relationships. Honor your father and your mother um, so that it will go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is going to give you. And then goes on from there, you know, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not lie, do not steal. And then at the end, and, th- and those are very brief, just very just straightforward, don't do these things, you shall not do these things. And at the end, in, in the 10th commandment, do not covet, has a long list of possible examples. It's not exhaustive. <laughs> it's not an exhaustive list list, it's representative. There's so many things that we covet, that we want. We desire these things. And it, I was reading a book by um, Francis Schaeffer. I, I read one from him, and it's been a while since I've read this. And so uh, I read it a while ago, but the thing that really jumped out at me is he's in this book called True Spirituality, where he's encouraging Christians to, to live out their faith. To, to, to not just hold on to right doctrine, but to love, love God, and to love other people. And then he, made a, he made a, 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 provided an insight on that 10th commandment. He's really said, look, that 10th commandment is really behind breaking all of the other ones. It's when you want something that you don't have that you steal. It's when you want a, a, a position in your life that you don't have that you lie to somebody. So you can try to get into their, their, maybe their good graces or to get something that you don't have. It's, it's when you want something that you don't have that you strike your neighbor down, that you kill. It's when you want what you don't have that you commit sexual sin. It's when you want what you don't have when you dishonor, disobey your parents. Coveting is behind it all. In fact, coveting is, is at, at its essence, it's putting yourself where God should be. And, and Schaefer said this, he says, actually we do everything we can 
whether it is in a philosophical sense or a practical sense, to put ourselves at the center of the universe, where God should be. Joy and contentment? I, I mean, that's, that's a... Joying, uh, the joy of contentment in Christ is a far cry from, from that, which is at the root of all of the sin in our lives. And we believe the world revolves around us, but it doesn't. We want, we want, as James said, we want what we don't have. James chapter 4, verses 1 and following, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Wow, there's nothing worse than a covetous prayer. Asking God for something that we covet. And you think God's going to give it to us? He may, he may, just to, to prove a point on how unsatisfying it will be. But most often, according to James, he's like, you're not going to get what you're, you're asking for from God. The things that you're coveting. So, covetousness, comparison, those things work together to steal our joy. So here we are, kind of desperate, going, well, we, sh we know we should be content, but... But if this is what's going on, if this is how my heart works, if this is where, 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 things, really, uh, where, where things really center in my life, what hope do I have? I was reading, when we read Psalm 115, something jumped out at me. So remember Psalm 115 right at the beginning of our worship gathering where the psalmist talks about those who make their own gods. They have eyes that can't see or ears that can't hear, mouths that can't speak, hands that can't touch, right? These are false gods. He says, and he, he makes the point that all these gods, we're just, we're, we're always making them. These are the works of our hands. We make them. Like John Calvin said that the heart, the human heart is an idol factory. It's cranking out idols faster than we can cast them down. So what do we do? We keep casting them down, yes. But it's hard to fight against an idol. We need something. We need help. That's why Paul says this. The secret. What I have learned. The secret that's not really a secret. The mystery that's not really hidden. It's this. In verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He's talking about Christ himself, I believe. And that's why some translations, they put his name in there. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's learned that's the secret. To do all things. Now, careful. Don't don't be careful about putting this verse on a poster, you know, in the gym. 
or putting it on your mug and just saying, today is my day. I can do all of these things. I'm going to just, I'm going to get that job or I'm going to that promotion or whatever it is. Because that's not what Paul's talking about. The, the do all things that he's talking about is the power, the ability to be content. That's where the third point comes in. That Christ makes possible the joy of contentment. And I, and I put it that way for a reason. He makes it possible. Because w- without Christ, we do not have the ability to be content. It's not going to happen. Without Christ. That's Paul's point here. Christ is our source of this strength. He is the power within us to be content, to live the life that He has given us perfectly, perfectly confident and happy and satisfied in Him. So we don't have to make comparisons to our family members or our friends or what we see in magazines or on TV. We don't have to make comparisons with other churches in the valley or in the northwest or in the world. We can be content that God has us right where He wants us today and that He is with us, that Christ empowers us and enables us. And how did He do that? He did it by humbling Himself. The very words where Paul says, I know how to be brought low. The very same word he used of Christ when he said that Christ in chapter 2 verse 8 humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how Christ won the victory for us. That's how Christ gives us or makes possible the joy of contentment. Without Him humbling Himself, we could not be content in our humility. Without Christ rising from the dead and satisfying us with good things, bringing life to us who were dead in our sins, we could not experience the joy of contentment even when our needs are met even in our abundance. John 6, verse 35, Jesus tells the the crowds gathered around Him, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall not thirst. That is what He offers. That's who Jesus is. That's what He makes possible. And He makes possible uh, the satisfying of our greatest need. Our greatest need is for our sin to be atoned for. The sin of covetousness, in particular. The sin of discontent, right here, that Paul is pointing out. He makes possible, by His death on the cross, for us to have our sins removed, to have the covet. our coveting hearts changed. To have our discontent transform into 
joyful contentment, gratitude, praise to Him, true joy that comes from a changed heart and a changed life. In Romans 3, Paul says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But he goes on. And are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. It's a pretty big word, but it means that He took our sins away. He atoned for our sins to be received, he says, Paul says, by faith. We receive that by faith. All that He has done for us. All that He is. He is our reason for getting up in the morning. <laughs> he is our reason for maybe taking steps of obedience when discontent is starting to control our lives. And maybe we need to, to look to Christ and to, uh, to let Him change our hearts from the inside out. Maybe we need to say no to some of those things that are drawing us away, that are storing up discontent so that we can have joy, so that we can be grateful, so that we can be generous in the way that He has been generous to us. So, what shall we do? One thing is, we need to repent. If we're coveting, if we're wanting something that's not ours, bring that, bring that to Jesus. We need to, we need to repent of those things. If, if we're discontent, or if we're comparing ourselves to others, we need to repent of that too. We need to bring that to Christ, who's paid for it by His blood. And then embrace what we have in Christ. What He has made us. What He has given us in Christ. And then, at that point, we can then walk in gratitude to others and to, to God. And we can then do what, what Christ did, placing others' needs above His own and living a generous life. But it's only when we come to Him. Whether, you've, whether you have walked with Christ for many years, or whether you've never repented and believed. The message is really the same. To come to Him, repent of our covetousness, repent of our discontent, repent of our comparisons, and embrace Christ, who is here for us, for our joy, for His glory. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. Thank you for teaching me through this message and challenging me and uh, reminding me that there are way too many comparisons going on in my life and in my heart, stirring up my discontent and robbing me of my joy in you. God, help me to, to just re rejoice in what you have given me and what others have so graciously given me too because honestly God I, I stand here I, 
the opposite of a self-made man. That all I have and all that I am is from you and from the people that you have put into my life to give me the joy that I have with you. And it's all from you, God. God, help us to be content in the good and the bad, no matter what situation, knowing that it's Christ who strengthens us. God, your son Jesus is enough for us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.